Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, energized life that totally rocks. You're listening to Straight Talking Natural Health, a no BS podcast for busy women who want to ditch the fatigue, find balance and feel great with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Today's guest is a bit of a superstar when it comes to women's hormones. She's a naturopathic doctor, an educator, an author, and a women's health activist. She literally wrote the book on how to have a healthy, stress-free, pain-free period. I followed her work closely because I actually have endometriosis myself, and I was blown away by her approach to healing endo as it went against a few of the things that we learned in college. So we will talk about this today and so much more. Please welcome to the show, the very amazing Lara Bryden. Hi. (laughs) Thanks, Jules. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our chat. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I know it's going to be so valuable to so many listeners today. Uh, Look, women's hormones can be a bit of a minefield as a pracky. It's a complex and it's an ever-changing field. So how did you end up in this niche yourself? By working with patients. Yeah, I started doing this working as a naturopath about 25 years ago, something like that. And just year after year, you know, just treating, treating the women who are coming for help and realizing that they do so much better on natural treatments than the pill or the other things that were being offered to them. And just slowly building, yeah, building my knowledge from that, seeing what works and what doesn't work, hearing women's stories. You must have seen a lot of different medical interventions over the years because how long have you been practicing now? Since the kind of mid-90s. So yeah, I mean, of course, back then, I talk about how, you know, back then it was high-dose hormone replacement, hysterectomy, routine hysterectomy, higher-dose pills and hormonal birth control. But in truth, you know, on the hormonal birth control side of things, thing, it hasn't changed that much. That's still the go-to for women's health, which we can dive into today and why that's not a solution for most women's health period problems. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. Like uh, I, it's more that they're just finding new and, and different ways to deliver these hormones into the Absolutely. person really, isn't it? It's so true. They, can, they keep coming up with these new things, but it's the same drugs repackaged and yeah, taken as an implant or a patch or it's kind of all the same stuff. Yeah, right. Okay. So let's, let's just pan out for a second and, and talk to me about, because I think this part's really, really important and, and this is in your book as well, that what should a normal period be like? Talk us through a healthy cycle because I reckon sometimes people don't even realize what normal is meant to look like. Yeah. And I, I put the bar pretty high for normal as in symptomless. You know, I think women have the right, it's our birthright to have periods, a menstrual cycle that arrives approximately every month. It does not have to be every 28 days. Absolutely not. But it should arrive approximately every month and arrive without symptoms, without pain, without excessive bleeding. And my key message is that the main event of the menstrual cycle is ovulation. So a normal menstrual cycle is by definition a menstrual cycle where ovulation occurred and then the bleed two weeks later, usually, 
except in the case of the hormonal IUD, which we can, one of the weird times when you can ovulate but not bleed. But in every other situation, ovulation comes first and then bleed two weeks later. And it is possible to have a bleed where there was no ovulation. So as you know, in my book, Period Repair Manual, I go on about that a little bit, just saying, are you ovulating? If you're not sure what's going on with your period, you know, come back to the question, are you ovulating? And with an, that's called an ovulatory cycle. That should arrive anywhere between every 21 days, counting from day one of the bleed to day one of the next bleed, up to anywhere up to every 35 days or even every 45 days for teenagers. Mm. And, and then the bleed shouldn't be more than about seven days long. And you shouldn't lose more than about 80 milliliters, which is like four or five tablespoons of menstrual fluid. Yep. How many women do you actually think have a period that looks like that? <laughs> it's interesting to, well, of course, the, my patients don't because that's why they're coming to me because they need help with that. But yeah, no, you're, you're right. It's, it's a lot of women are not perhaps fitting into the, that, those parameters, but they can get there. That's one of my other key messages is that even if you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, that's all fine, you know, but my periods are broken, you know, something's really wrong with me. I could never achieve that. I would argue that most women can get there or pretty close to there. I mean, I think one of the exceptions, not exceptions, but one of the more complicated things is endometriosis, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit today. It's the, the, the challenge of pain with endometriosis, you know, creates sort of a, a new aspect to it. But even then, even with endometriosis, what I say to my endometriosis patients is you can get to a lot less pain than you have now. You know, the goal is pain-free, and we'll see how close we can get to that. But for women who don't have endometriosis, the goal is pain-free. Yeah. Well, we might as well dive down that rabbit hole first uh, now that you've provided me with a yeah. perfect segue. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about endometriosis. So in a nutshell, what is it and, and what's causing it? Ooh, all of those are loaded questions. <laughs> well, the, what is right. it, hope, hope, the what is it, hopefully we can all agree. It's a chronic inflammatory disease that mostly affects the pelvis, but it can occur in other places, that consists of inflammatory lesions that can be invasive, that can cause scar tissue, that certainly can cause pain. And it's a disease that is affected by hormones, but not caused by hormones. It's more, I put endometriosis more in the category of other inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease. And actually, there's a lot of similarities with a lot of connection with inflammatory bowel disease. So from my lens, through my lens, once I started thinking about endometriosis as an inflammatory disease that's affected by hormones and the menstrual cycle, rather than a problem with the menstrual cycle per se, it really helped me to get better results with my patients and understand the disease. And this is the thing that, that, that really flipped a lot of naturopathic thinking on its head because this is what I, I sort of alluded to in the introduction this morning is that it's in college we were really taught that this is yes it's an inflammatory situation but it's caused by a hormonal imbalance no yeah <laughs> and so we've spent a lot of time and a lot of herbal medicine you know investment tweaking hormones, tweaking hormones, but, you know, trying to get rid of excess estrogen, like really making estrogen out to be the bad guy. No. What's going on then? Yeah. In fact, very often women with endometriosis have normal hormones. I just had a patient yesterday, actually, who 
she happened to have some, I don't routinely do hormonal testing for endometriosis, but she had a whole panel of hormone tests and it was all normal. She was ovulating regularly. She was making pretty normal amounts of estrogen and progesterone. Her period was regular. All that was happening, but she has endometriosis. She's in pain. So the situation is the, in, the disease comes first. It's, it's, it's an inflammatory disease primarily linked to immune dysfunction consists of, as you know, you know, lesions that are similar to the tissue that, that lines the uterus, but not exactly the same. Actually, it's quite different in some ways to uterine lining. And it, the disease is progressing because of immune dysfunction. There's almost always that autoimmune genetic type is the, the woman who will get it. Like some, pe- some people have the immune system where they will never get endometriosis, basically. It's just the thing. Their immune system will never do that. No matter how much estrogen they have, no matter kind of how you know, what their diet is or anything like that, they're never going to progress to endometriosis. You have to have a few things in place to develop this disease. One is certain genetics, you know, certain genetic type, immune type. There's definitely what's called an epigenetic effect, which is most certainly, I would say, exposure to environmental toxins by previous generations being passed down that would, you know, pass down sort of acquired immune dysfunction and to some degree, kind of hormone dysregulation. But when I say hormone dysregulation with endometriosis, I mean locally at the lesion, not the hormones in the whole body, not the hormones the ovaries are making, but what's actually happening in terms of hormone sensitivity and the local production of estrogen by the lesions. But that's all wrapped up in the inflammatory process. And then the other part of endometriosis is something called the pelvic microbiome, which is the microbiome of the pelvis, not the gut. So it's it's linked to the gut for sure, but it's actually the commensal bacteria or the, the, the microorganisms that live throughout the pelvis. And there's growing evidence that women with endometriosis have high levels of gram-negative bacteria in the pelvic cavity. And that when that situ- it creates a perfect storm for inflammatory lesions, when you kind of get the presence of the lesions plus the immune system type or you know know, vulnerability to dysfunction plus the presence of these gram-negative bacteria and something called LPS or lipopolysaccharide toxin being present plus estrogen. So estrogen comes in there. Estrogen is immune stimulating. So arguably, it's interesting, estrogen is arguably an inflammatory hormone, but it also has anti-inflammatory properties as well. So it's not all bad and we, we need estrogen for lots of things. But when there's a, especially kind of this immune or autoimmune type inflammation, estrogen tends to worsen that. And that's true for any, almost not all, but many autoimmune diseases, actually, estrogen will worsen it. Whereas progesterone, conversely, will modulate immune function, calm down immune function. So one of my goals with my patients with endometriosis is to address the immune dysfunction so they're not so sensitive to estrogen so they can enjoy the normal kind of ups and downs of estrogen that have to happen with a healthy menstrual cycle and not experience pain from estrogen if that makes sense yep it makes perfect sense yeah you've mentioned the immune system and the inflammation in sort of a you know in a roundabout context that it's similar to autoimmune do you do you think in time endo is going to be classified as an autoimmune disease or is it always just going to be like a, a similar to autoimmune disease situation? 
I suspect similar to, you know, the, the whole, the contention that endometriosis is an autoimmune disease has been very controversial, unfortunately. And I don't see that it needs to be so controversial. I think we can all, you know, step back from, we don't have to, it doesn't have to tick every box of qualifying as an autoimmune disease. It's definitely a disease of immune dysfunction. I think that is agreed upon everywhere at this stage. And I think the writing's on the wall that already that future treatments are going to pivot to even medical, you know, mainstream treatments are going to pivot to treating immune dysfunction rather than suppressing hormones as a so-called fix for the disease. Because I mean, suppressing estrogen doesn't, it can alleviate the symptoms, like, you know, it can slow down the disease, but it's not a treatment. I mean, it's kind of like if you've, I don't know, the analogy I'm thinking is like, if you've got Oh, I maybe mean, I can't think of the right quite the right analogy, but like it, the goal, I guess, the analogy might be that there's a if there's a fire burning, by switching off estrogen, you you know you stop throwing petrol on the fire, but the fire is still there. Like the better plan is to <laughs> address actually address the inflammation, address the immune dysfunction, and then mm-hmm. estrogen won't be a problem anymore. Yeah, and it it's interesting though because even when you said that the the medical model might switch hopefully to addressing that part of it to to addressing the deeper cause i sort of get chills as a naturopath when we talk about that because i'm like oh god what autoimmune uh, medications are they going to try out on this like what's what is i mean let's talk about what what's the current medical treatment for endo well as you know surgery which i'm not against Mm. but you know hopefully properly done surgery combined with hormonal suppression that that's pretty much it i mean pain relief i guess would be the other part of the medical treatment so treating pain switching off the menstrual cycle and removing the lesions that's pretty much it i guess you know the other part of aspect of conventional treatment which is very valid is actually um you know pelvic pelvic therapy or physical therapy for pelvic floor and addressing that side of things as well i hear what you're saying though about what might immune medical immune modulating treatment look like mm. and i do share that concern i i think it's hard to predict what that's gonna look like exactly i mean for example um, a lot of things are being trialed one of the medicines that's being trialed from a conventional perspective is curcumin for you know its immune modulating properties so that you know, that would be a positive outcome. That would be something we and that's something we can certainly use now. Turmeric. That's something we can all agree on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know what else is going to be coming. I I hear you. You know, and I think from of course as a naturopath, I always think there's going to be a better way to address it. I, I think we should dive straight into the role of the gut because yes. that's the obvious way into this. That's the and certainly from a natural perspective, I I would hope one day conventional medicine might see it that way as well. So to to link it with the gut, I just have to reiterate the point about it's a problem with the pelvic microbiome. So it's these gram-negative bacteria, essentially E. coli, in the pelvis, creating, making the immune system very upset, <laughs> and understandably so. Like the immune system is like, what is going on? What are these bacteria doing here? This is not a good situation. I'm very concerned and generating and therefore generating a lot of abnormal immune cells, cytokines. And the 
the place that those gram-negative bacteria are coming from is almost certainly the gut. So this is a situation of leaky gut or intestinal permeability, but not just into the bloodstream, but into the pelvis. And there are some, in fact, there's a Sydney microbiologist working on some of this, well, trying to understand a bit more about the pelvic microbiome and its role. But from a naturopathic perspective, doesn't it make sense that if there's SIBO or active dysbiosis in the gut, that that's, you know, potentially going to have an effect in the nearby pelvis, you know, that's going to have a a driving effect on inflammatory lesions that are right next door that are literally like just a centimeter away from it. Exactly. So, <laughs> makes perfect sense. Yeah. So the tr- my approach is always to look at the gut, always, always. And there's, as you probably know, there's a huge overlap between not only inflammatory bowel disease and endometriosis, but irritable bowel syndrome and endometriosis, SIBO and endometriosis. It, it They almost always present together. Very occasionally I'll get um, a patient with endometriosis who doesn't have actively obvious gut issues, but that would be rare in my experience. And so, and part of that, I have to acknowledge, part of that is that endo affects the gut as well. So it's not just the, the gut's affecting endo. That's my you know perspective. There's a bit of this back and forth, you know, the endometriosis lesions themselves can affect the gut. And there can be just sort of a generalized, what do they call it? Like a sort of generalized activation of the nervous system throughout the pelvis that affects both both systems. So, But because we can change what's happening in the gut, it's the obvious way in. So we can address dysbiosis. We can knock back SIBO. Do your listeners know what SIBO is? Is that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Yeah, I, th- I think we've been... Yeah, we bang on about it a bit. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> so that's, as you know, the overgrowth of... Uh, bacteria in the small intestine where they're not supposed to be. They're commensal bacteria, but they're supposed to be, especially E. coli, is supposed to be down in the large bowel, not up in the small bowel. And so if it's up in the small bowel, that, you know, those bacteria are going to generate inflammation, basically, and intestinal permeability and cause bloating and discomfort. So you need to address that. And that... it yeah. is that thing where a lot of people don't, it's like that chicken or the egg. Like a lot of people would put that bloating and discomfort down to the endo that they've had for so right. many years. Well, it is both. That's why I had to acknowledge that. So, but yeah, I think the prevailing narrative has been that endo affects the gut, but I'm suggesting it goes both ways and I'm suggesting it goes more in the direction of the gut affects endo. And it's funny because I had this experience myself in the 1990s when I was a student naturopath and you, you do what you do as a student and you start trying out everything. And I did an eight-week, one of those brutal 1990s-style anti-candida diets. You remember those? They were so, yep. they were so yep. much fun. Um, <laughs> not. Yeah. So, uh, like, no, no sugar, no gluten, no dairy, no white starchy carbohydrates, blah, 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 blah. Plus, I was also taking some really brutal kind of anti-candida herbs, you know, your Powdarko and the old 1990s, you know, citrus seed grapefruit seed extract, all of that. Yep. And that is the first time in my whole life that my period pain went away. And I didn't even know I had endo back then because I only found out later. And it, it, at the time, it, it, I wasn't even learning this at college because they were saying that um, endometriosis and, and period pain was all related to 
hormonal imbalances and go looking for the excess, excess estrogen or the, you know, progesterone being low, balance these out, take Phytex, rah, rah, rah. Mm, and, yep. But I experienced it on a personal level. It was like, oh, eight-week anti-candida diet, no period pain, and then went off the anti-candida diet and started going back to eating normally. What do you know? Period pain came back. Well, and isn't that good? And Because you say you have endometriosis. So that's a situation where the diet changes brought you to 100% pain-free, which is, which is great. I mean, that can happen. Um, that's really... Yeah, yeah, it was it was actually incredible. But even back then, I still didn't really put two and two together because you go back to college and they were like, oh, yeah, hormonal imbalance. And I was like, oh, yeah, better just take Vitex and peony until the cows come home. So, wow. yeah, so I as soon as as soon as this this new way of looking at things came to light, I was like 100% on board because I was like, this is what happened. This is what yeah. happened. And this is what I notice in, in so many of my clients is when you start getting them off the foods that they're intolerant to and you do, you know, some, uh, some gut healing and you get rid of the pathogens in the gut, they start to get better. Yes. Um, so yeah, talk to me about the food allergies and intolerances in endo. What do we need to look out for? Well, as you know, there's going to be some individual variation in there. So potentially any food that's, you know, creating a histamine response, that's been you know, an a type of inflammatory response that's creating, um, that's worsening SIBO or adding to the inflammation, it's going to be a problem. But as a general rule for this disease, the top two foods to think about are gluten and cow's dairy. And it's not just what they're doing in the gut. Well, it's, it's also the way they, they can create quite a powerful inflammatory reaction in certain people, in people that have the right kind of genetic makeup to respond to that. So here's an example with, um, there's a researcher, well, um, doctor, clinician, researcher, um, Jeffrey Braverman, who he never fully published this. He only published it kind of on his blog, but I've, <laughs> I'm very intrigued. He tested all of his endo patients all of his other patients with endometriosis are patients with what he called subclinical endometriosis, where the disease is there, not causing a lot of pain, but definitely causing infertility. And he tested all of those patients for the celiac gene and found that most of them have the genotype associated with celiac disease. So wow. not that they have celiac disease, but they have that. Basically, you know, the celiac genotype or having the celiac genes is actually just a certain immune type that happens to be particularly vulnerable to gluten sensitivity. So there's a strong correlation with endometriosis and gluten sensitivity. I, I'd stop short of saying every single person with endometriosis should avoid gluten, but it's pretty close for me. Like, I, you know, I haven't, I've yet to see many women who don't probably need to be strictly gluten-free at least for a while maybe not forever at least till the immune you know dysfunction is stabilized yeah um, and that's such a see that's such an autoimmune way yeah. of looking at things as well i mean if you ask amy myers about uh hashimoto's she'll be like get off gluten if you go yeah. and speak to terry walls about ms she'll be like get off gluten like everyone who's going down the rabbit hole of, of all those other autoimmune diseases they they're saying exactly the same things about gluten and dairy like gluten enemy number one especially if you have you know if you have that susceptibility to possibly developing celiac like it's this is it's it's looking the same from where i'm sitting 
It, it's very similar to those autoimmune diseases, yes. And the thing about gluten and this kind of immune dysfunction is that there's no partly doing it. It's Unfortunately, it's really kind of an all-or-nothing thing, at least for a while. So I need to distinguish. So what we're talking about now is trying to stabilize an immune system that's very unhappy about a combination of things. But you know, to do that, to, to kind of appease the immune system and get it to change what it's doing, it usually requires kind of strict avoidance of gluten and usually cow's dairy for a while, like for eight weeks or something like that. It's, that's different than, say, for other types of conditions where you just, for example, you know, eat less sugar or, you know, reduce the number of FODMAPs, you, FOD, you know, the sort of bloaty type foods you have. Those are, sugar and FODMAPs are things you can kind of dial up and dial down in my experience. You don't, there's never a point where you have to strictly eliminate those types of foods. But with this sort of immune dysfunction, you start to get into the territory of there might be a case for strict elimination, at least for a while. Would you agree with that from your... Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's sadly, I think you're right. Yeah, I don't want you to be right. No, I, really I know. I want you to be right. But <laughs> exactly. It's exactly what I'm seeing in practice as well is is the, the stricter the person is, the better the results they get. And it is, it's a really tricky situation, isn't it? Because you have to wait a month for your next month, as you call it, the monthly report card yeah. to find out whether what you're doing is helping. And then it's another month before you get your period again. And so it's, it's sometimes it's very hard to keep people motivated to do those things quite strictly because it's like, it's another month before they find out how they're going. Yeah. And just, it's such a good point. And with endo, I'd say minimum three months, three cycles to really give the treatment a chance because it's a tricky disease. I mean, you can, like you described doing an eight week diet and getting results straight away. That's not always how it goes, but like with my endometriosis patients, I'd say, let's, let's touch base after eight weeks. If you're not dramatically better, we're probably going to keep going because that's actually a little too soon to give up Mm. with this kind of thing, but other types of conditions, I mean, just to broaden it out, zoom out a bit, you know, with PMS and you know, normal period pain and other sorts of things, there can be a faster response. So it depends what the symptom is you're trying to change. But yeah, sometimes it's required to wait at least a month or at least three months. Yeah. Mm. And then there's, there's other things that you will be doing. It's not just about avoiding food. So uh, I know that a lot of naturopaths now, myself included, we're looking towards the, the berberine uh, family yeah. of herbs. So uh, because we're also dealing with the, you know, those, the bacterial overgrowth in the gut that needs to be knocked down. So what are some of the things you do for that? I use berberine. Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, um, but carefully and, I mean, just your listeners should know that category of herbal medicines can interact with other medication and, you know, is not safe during pregnancy and just doing a couple little quick, like a little um, quick cautions around that. Yeah. But otherwise it's, you know, it can be quite a useful strategy. I do a course of a, a berberine or a berberine containing herbal medicine for like eight weeks. I kind of do four weeks, take a break, four weeks, see where we're at. And then, and at the same time, I probably have zinc in place. Zinc and vitamin A are a couple of my go-tos for immune and gut health, of which you know, gut health and immune health are linked. But you know how how wonderful are zinc and preformed vitamin A for supporting healthy tissue and healthy immune system? And I mentioned the vitamin A 
and again, I do be careful because it can, preformed vitamin A is not safe during pregnancy, you know, there's various precautions, but I mentioned vitamin A because it's different than beta carotene. And so I'm now speaking a little bit to any of your listeners who might be plant-based exclusively plant-based diet, which I'm not a fan, but for what it's worth, if there is anyone like that, they should really, the zinc and vitamin A are the two nutrients to think about and maybe iodine. Um, yeah, what's the relationship between iodine and histamine? Yeah, that's a good then, one. I mean, certainly I, I use iodine for endo. Um, be, being I get more careful, I guess, with a histamine response, if it's someone with a strong histamine response. But iodine has an antimicrobial effect. It has an anti-estrogen effect, has an immune modulating effect. I've had, anecdotally, I've talked to not just my patients, but I've talked to a few practitioners who said iodine was the thing that, sorted their endometriosis out actually potentially kind of a higher dose iodine which again i keep seem to be mentioning all these supplements that you need to be a little bit careful with yeah <laughs> but, um, <'cause, laughs> yeah please um, speak to your practitioner don't yeah exactly so don't just run out and get a big get, dose iodine but get um, it tested first like that's yeah. that's an easy one to test as well the test yes the test before doing it well talk to your clinician if you can but the test before taking iodine at a dose higher than say three or 400 micrograms. The most important test to do is a test for autoimmune thyroid disease, which unfortunately a lot of women with endometriosis have that actually, because that's a common, the autoimmune diseases tend to come in clusters. But um, if you don't have that, it's, you know, because anyone with the Hashimoto's or the type of thyroid disease where the immune system attacks the thyroid, a higher dose iodine can be quite problematic for that can actually worsen that condition so that's one of my main precautions um, yeah. yeah and so i also read recently that iodine deficiency can cause some sort of issue with estrogen sensitivity yes well I, yeah absolutely so that's it's one of my if we're going to talk about supplements or strategies to so-called reduce so you know reduce estrogen or reduce sensitivity to estrogen, it's iodine for me. And I use that for breast pain, for, you know, potentially for conditions, you know, and another condition called adenomyosis, which we haven't even really talked about yet, but it's a cousin to endometriosis. It's a um, kind of like endometriosis of the uterus. It's quite, can be quite painful, cause heavy bleeding, mm. underdiagnosed, unfortunately, as is endometriosis. Yes. Yeah, definitely underdiagnosed. Diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. Now, before we before we leave the endo and talk about PCOS, uh, million dollar question for you because I get asked this one all the time. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to hear it from you. Uh, what about coffee, Lara? Yay or nay? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm. Everyone's like, you're taking in- away my gluten and dairy, but please don't take away my coffee. <laughs> I okay. I generally am supportive of coffee. I, like I know I'm maybe a little bit of an outsider with that. I think the thing to think about is the dairy could be a big part part of it. So milky coffees potentially yes can be a problem. Coffee itself, in terms of immune dysfunction, I'm not, I'm not yet convinced that it's a you know big driver. Um, you know I'm open to new evidence on that. Certainly, coffee is a stimulating drug. So if it's you know causing anxiety or affecting sleep, then yeah, there's no reason to be having a stimulating drug. But it's not, with my own patients, it's not a priority thing that I eliminate, no. Alcohol, on the other hand, 
I do. Mm. And actually one of my pet peeves is the way alcohol and coffee get lumped together because they're actually really quite different. Alcohol is promotes intestinal permeability, promote, gives this, you know, every alcoholic drink gives this massive um, wave of LPS toxin into the body. Creates, you know, it's, it's, um, it's poison. Um, mm. So yeah, I don't know. What, what's your view on coffee? I'm happy to balance it out. Uh, <laughs> my husband used to be a barista for six years. So <laughs> I, um, we have a, a, an amazing coffee machine in our house. And so I definitely cherry pick the data so that <laughs> yeah. I can say that I'm fine with coffee. Fine. Everything's fine. I do agree with you with the alcohol as well, though I do find that it, it has an inflammatory effect. And in particular, you, your sugary, carby, yeasty, you know, like your beer oh, yeah. and wine and oh, those sorts of things. Like, yeah. I know. I, I find sometimes people can get away. I don't know if you've seen this, but with things like, you know, straight gin or straight vodka and soda water, like if they have to go out and have a drink like that, that seems to be your harm minimization kind of thing. But I do find that as soon as people get on the wine or the champagne or the beer or the cider, like, yeah, it's, it's not very good for them. No. Sadly, I hate to be the, you know, the alcohol police, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, I fear you are correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Let's change tack a little bit and talk about yeah. PCOS. Cause I know sure. this is another one of, of your favorite things to talk about. And it does feature in your book very strongly. Yeah. And, and I fear that like endo, this one's getting a lot of missed diagnosis and um, underdiagnosed, especially in Australia. Uh, what's going on? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing, okay. A couple of things to say. PCOS is both potentially underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed, which we can talk about. I can clarify that a little bit, but there's a lot of women being told they have PCOS when they don't. So that's something we should, um, yeah, cover. But the other thing that's, the other thing I want to say is it's possible to have both PCOS and endometriosis. I've only, you know, I'm responding to just, you know, conversations I've had with patients and, and women online is, I don't know where this kind of idea came from that has to be one or the other. Like you can totally have both. They're, um, they're both common conditions. They're quite different from each other. So there's, yeah, there's no law in the body that says you can't have both. And if you do have both, I have a blog post called, what if you have both PCOS and endometriosis? My advice is treat the endometriosis first, because that is by far the more serious condition potentially. And Unfortunately, if you treat PCOS and start having stronger, more robust menstrual cycles, as you do by treating PCOS, you potentially make you more get period pain more often. Yeah, exactly. It worsens oh. the endometriosis symptoms. Yes, so I've had so many women who patients who they, let's say they were on the pill, they came off the pill, they were told they had PCOS because they're not getting periods. It's kind of a post-pill PCOS lack of period situation. And then they treat that and then their endo kicks in. So you just need to be a little bit careful. If there's any history of, you know, severe period pain, pre-hormonal birth control, I'll be like, let's think about that <laughs> before yeah. we move too fast on anything else here. And this is um, something that you said in, yeah. a, in a seminar that I went to. I, we were saying this just before we hit record. I don't even know what year it was because I don't even know yeah. where we are anymore. But I think pre-COVID. it was about, yeah, pre-COVID. I think it was <laughs> 18 months ago. And I remember you saying, that period pain is not a symptom of PCOS. 
Correct. And it's, and it's so important for women to know that because they, they know they've got PCOS or they suspect they've got PCOS and they just think that's part of the picture. And no, if you've got period pain, you need to look elsewhere. Absolutely. It's very well said. Very good, good idea to say that now. And that is a segue into the overdiagnosis problem of PCOS. So I'm going to just go straight into that. The yeah. acknowledging that PCOS is real. So I'm totally not saying it's not a real condition because it is. Um, it PCOS by definition is the situation of having excess male hormones, androgens or testosterone, possibly irregular cycles, although not always. And all other explanations for the high male hormones has been ruled out. That's what it is. That's the condition. It's a hormonal condition where androgen excess is the main feature of it. And it's, well, it's not even one thing. It's the, it's the symptom of high male hormones when all other causes have been ruled out. So right there, you, the fact that it's really just describing a symptom and not a disease process makes it what's called a heterogeneous syndrome, which means it's multiple things all given the same name. So that's part of the confusion. But I mean, and I'll just direct your listeners to, I have a blog post called The Four Types of PCOS. I have a big section in Chapter 7 of Period Repair Manual about this. So if, if you want more than we can cover in the next 10 or 15 minutes, please you know, look there. But from my definition of PCOS as a condition of androgen excess, you can infer from that that it has nothing to do with cysts on the ovaries. Like nothing to do with cysts on the ovaries, which is why everybody's in agreement that the name has to change. I mean, ideally the name would change. The reason it hasn't changed is, well, it's hard, you know, there's been a lot of awareness raising work done around polycystic ovary syndrome. So I guess some people feel like to change the name would just pull the rug out from under that. But unfortunately, the fact that polycystic ovary is in the name points everyone in the wrong direction, including doctors. So Historically, there was this correlation that women with this androgen syndrome have multiple, okay, what they have is they have ovaries where at least in that moment in time when the ultrasound is done, it could totally be different like a month later, but in that, at a certain moment when the test is done, they're likely to have an ovary that didn't ovulate. So an ovary that didn't form what's called a dominant follicle, therefore there are a lot of, you know, undeveloped follicles, which are really just eggs. So, you know, the cysts, the so-called cysts that are being described in this situation are not cysts. They're, they're just eggs or follicles, which are normal for the ovary. And it's really just sort of a numbers game. Like, did you ovulate that cycle or not? And what factors into all of this is, of course, young women have a lot more eggs. Normal, that's just a normal situation for them. So they have a lot more follicles. So they're more likely to just show you know, a certain, above a certain count of eggs in their ovaries, which just doesn't mean anything to do with this condition. And to differentiate, there is such a thing, of course, as an abnormal ovarian cyst. There's multiple kinds of ovarian cysts, large structures that are either like an abnormally large follicle that didn't ovulate or, you know, an endometrioma, which is actually just an endometriosis structure. So all of those other kinds of ovarian cysts are genuine cysts and a problem. The the so-called polycystic is just yeah. It just the whole the whole the whole, basically doctors need to stop doing ultrasounds 
of the ovaries to try to diagnose an androgen condition. Um, so I've, I have had, uh, I've had clients who've been knocked back uh, in terms of getting a diagnosis because they didn't have any cysts on an ultrasound. Exactly. So it yeah. works both ways. So, okay. So you're describing someone, usually I would say that would be someone a little bit older, like, you know, you know, thirties, maybe, you know, by thirties into your forties, all of us have fewer follicles. So we're just straight out less likely to show multiple follicles above whatever threshold they've decided they're going to go with. But that doesn't mean you don't have the androgen syndrome of PCOS. Like you can totally have the hormonal condition PCOS and have normal looking ovaries. Conversely, especially if you're young, you can a hundred percent have polycystic ovaries and not have PC, the hormonal condition PCOS, like have nothing to do with you know, PCOS, you could totally have, say, full-blown endometriosis and happen to have polycystic ovaries on that one time when they did an ultrasound, right? Yeah. And it's just like one snapshot yeah. of one moment in a yeah. person's life. Yeah. And conversely, you could have lost your period to under-eating, which is pretty common in young women. Or overtraining. Yep. Yeah. Happen to have polycystic ovaries, therefore be mistakenly told you have PCOS when you actually have under-eating then Google PCOS and see what you're supposed to do and decide to cut carbs or eat less when you've already lost your period to under eating. And that is something mm-hmm. I've seen a lot. And that is with my patients. And that is very concerning that there's this just kind of breakdown in communication that I guess I don't know if doctors don't know or what, what, what is going on, like why they're sending these young women off with this diagnosis when it's sending them in the wrong direction. I can tell I'm very concerned about it because I see I know, it so often. But, and and yeah. because it affects so many young women, like we're setting yeah. them up, like they're at a point in time where their HPA axis is still sorting itself out. Like yeah. it's a very vulnerable time for yeah. women's hormones. And then like then they're getting this diagnosis and then being told to take these certain actions. And yeah, like you said, they might be told to eat a certain way, but also they might get put on the pill, right, yeah, for well, this. The, uh, the pill is not... The pill is never a solution for PCOS um, it, in any sense of the word. Like it, um, it can suppress symptoms. It can, okay, certain types of pills can suppress androgen symptoms. Certain types of pills can cause androgen symptoms, actually, so it's important to kind of know what you're taking because <laughs> um, some progestin drugs are androgenic or testosterone-like, which can basically cause a PCOS-looking situation. Um, so, and also, you know, the pill potentially worsens the underlying problem because what you what to recover from PCOS, and it's totally possible to re- recover from it or reverse out of the symptom picture, it requires promoting a healthy communication between the brain and the ovaries, what's, what's called the HPO axis or hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, promoting healthy activity of that communication which involves ovulation and ovulating and making progesterone to feed back onto the, the hypothalamus and the brain. And the pill shuts all of that down. So the pill, you know, prevents really any kind of recovery and arguably can worsen the insulin resistance that can drive androgen excess in some women. So, and also the pill, I mean, this, the other part of this is, We've had this crazy, like I don't use the word crazy lightly here. We've had this crazy strategy of regulating the period 
try to regulate the menstrual cycle with drugs that shut down the menstrual cycle. Like it's <laughs> nutty. And so, I mean, the other thing to understand, which hopefully, you know, your listeners do, but you know, pill bleeds are not menstrual cycles. They're not periods. It's just a timed withdrawal bleed from those drugs. Like we said right at the beginning that a menstrual cycle has ovulation as the main event. So if you, the pill contraceptive drugs like at full dose kind of put you into like a chemical menopause as long as you're taking them and then induce this withdrawal bleed. Like in no way is that like a menstrual cycle. So in fact, if you're on the pill, there's really no reason to bleed monthly. There's no medical reason to bleed monthly. So you get, you get the idea, like we're in this crazy PCOS of all the women's health conditions. I would say it's the one with the most back to front, just mixed up things right now, both in terms of diagnosis and treatment um, conventionally. But yet as a positive thing, usually the condition of excess responds really well, you know, to diet and certain nutritional supplements and it's largely reversible. Yes. So, so, so yeah. let's talk about that. Let's, uh, so let's talk about, cause you did mention, uh, like carbohydrates and sugar briefly before. Yeah. So, okay. Mm. Let's talk about that. And first, before we leave, before we embark on treatment and we're definitely going to do a little kind of five minute summary of treatment, but I will just, just say circling back to my comments about ultrasound, I always like to make the point that I'm not saying to not have an ultrasound because ultrasound, a pelvic ultrasound can be used to pick up many different things, right? Like ovarian cysts or adenomyosis potentially or a thickened uterine lining, which is actually can happen with PCOS, which is important to know about. So I'm not saying to not have an ultrasound. I'm just saying, do not accept the ultrasound finding of polycystic ovaries as meaning anything. So what is the test that you would recommend that patients ask for? If we're getting someone to advocate for themselves and they're walking into their GP tomorrow, what is the thing that they need to ask for to, to look for PCOS properly? Test for androgens, um, which is testosterone and, a, and a, another test called SHBG. I mean, I think that's bare minimum that should be done. Acknowledging that sometimes that comes back normal or borderline normal and it's, it's still potentially a situation where you qualify for a PCOS diagnosis. But still, I think it's worth measuring androgens. It's worth measuring insulin resistance, which because the condition of having high insulin is a major driver potentially of some types of PCOS. And I guess the other thing the doctor is supposed to be doing in any assessment of irregular periods is that other part of the definition, which is ruling out everything else, right? So high, something you can have too high prolactin. That's another hormone that can be a cause of androgen symptoms and irregular periods. You can have thyroid problems, which needs to be ruled out. So a lot of it is a lot of the blood testing is just to kind of rule out the other things, rule out something called um, adrenal hyperplasia, which is another cause of high androgens or male hormones. So all of that has to happen. And then if, in terms of diagnosis, the situation is if, if all of those other things have been ruled out and you definitely have signs of androgens like facial hair or significant jawline acne, then it's PCOS really. That, that's kind of how the, the diagnosis works at this stage. It's a very loose diagnosis. Like doesn't take, Process it, it's of elimination. A, yeah, it's a process of elimination. It doesn't take much to qualify for a diagnosis of PCOS, unfortunately. Yeah. It's pretty easy to qualify for. I think only some of the women who qualify for it are 
uh, I would say kind of more hardwired PCOS, like maybe been like that all their life. Some of them are what I describe in the book as post-pill PCOS, just in a temporary state where they're trying to come off the drugs, either cipterone or drosperinone, those particular contraceptive drugs can cause a androgen surge when you try to come off them. And yeah, can cause we terrible... see a lot of post-pill acne. Oh yeah, it causes yeah. terrible post-pill acne. Yeah. So put, put it this way. Okay, so if you, let's say you've got a woman who was fine as a teenager, you know, periods were fine. Like she maybe had a little bit of teenage acne, but nothing too bad. And she was going along. Then she took Yasmin, that's drosperinone, for contraception and took it for like, you know, 10 years or something and then comes off. And if, if she's in this situation of she doesn't get her period back, she doesn't get her period back when she comes off because pill bleeds are not periods. So her period, her real period doesn't reappear right away. Plus she's got post pill acne. It could even be in that situation that her lack of periods coming back is actually due to under eating, but she's got this terrible post pill acne. By definition, she's PCOS really. Like you see what I mean? Because the, the way the definition is right now, if you, if you have androgen symptoms and irregular periods and other things have been ruled out, that's, that's what you're left with. So that would be a, more of a temporary PCOS. Often it's really just about in that situation, getting through the post-pill acne, treating that. I have a blog post about that. I have a section in my book about that. Mm. And trusting your skin will recover. It could take a couple of years, unfortunately, but you know, mm. hopefully get mostly better quick, more quickly than that. Um, and then work to get the period back, which means identifying kind of why the period's not coming. I mean, one, it's just as a little takeaway, you know, if you're really trying to decide, is the lack of ovulation in the case of, you know, no periods and potential PCOS diagnosis, if you're trying to decide, okay, is the lack of ovulation due to insulin resistance and high androgens, i.e. PCOS, or is it due to undereating? which is also called hypothalamic amenorrhea. It's not PCOS. The test I use is a ratio between FSH and LH, those two pituitary hormones. If you can, if there's any kind of cycle, you test them on like day three, two or three of the cycle. If there's no cycle at all, you test them randomly, but interpret them carefully because if the period happens to come two weeks later, then the test is not valid. But if it's a baseline FSH and LH, follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Typically with PCOS, LH will be higher. And typically with under eating, or almost always with under eating, LH is low compared uh -huh. to FSH. LH can be very low, like almost non-existent with severe under eating. And I rely on that pretty strongly as a clinician, actually. I just find that helps to figure out which direction. Because if you're standing there, you know, as a, as a patient or a clinician, you're thinking, do I go in the direction of eating more, like way, way more? <laughs> or do I have to go in the direction of, you know, is this insulin resistance? Do I have to cut sugar? And, you know, that sort of direction. Mm. So it's, it's pretty important to try to get it right at the diagnosis absolutely. stage. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, like we were saying before, like the, if it is true PCOS and there's insulin resistance, then it really is a lower carb, lower sugar style of yes. diet, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And uh, we have to mention before we leave the topic of PCOS that the nutritional supplement inositol is really good. <laughs> I, always yes. like doing, I always feel like I'm doing an infomercial when I talk yeah. about it. <laughs> like 
it's it's inexpensive. <laughs> you know, any brand is fine, pretty much. You know, you usually want to get it as a powder. Inositol made the list, the international guidelines for PCOS as a treatment option. So it's right there with all the drugs. Like it, it made it. It jumped through all the hoops of evidence-based medicine. It's there. And it's safe when you're trying for pregnancy. You can see what <laughs> I'm sounding like an infomercial. Yeah. And, <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> exactly. So, and it has no side effects. And yeah, I love it. I mean, yeah. I rely on that pretty heavily. And it, it takes a while. Any situation where you're trying to get your period back, you need to give it six months to kind of do what it needs to do. But it takes a while, but it's definitely the payoff can be great. Yeah. And yeah. please, please, before you go jumping on iHerb and shoveling inositol in, yeah. so you've got PCOS first, go through the yeah. testing process first. Yeah. It's, well, put it this way, it's harmless, which is good. True. But yeah, you don't want to be taking, if you're, if you're, the main thing you need to do is eat 2,500 calories a day and 200 grams of carbohydrate to recover from hypothalamic amenorrhea, then the inositol is not going to do anything. Mm. Right. What we call in Australia, money down the dunny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Oh, goodness. We've covered so, so, so much terrain today in such a short time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I need to go and shake it all off now. Um, yeah. Go for a run around the block or something. Um, Lara, thank you so, so much for throwing us down a couple of rabbit holes in quick succession today. Yeah. Um, Tell us about your book and, and also please can you share where people can find you online? Absolutely. So my book is Period Repair Manual and it's for women of every age and situation. My new book, Hormone Repair Manual, I'll just give it a little quick little plug here. It's coming in February. It's for women over 40. Oh, my God. So, oh, my God. Yeah. I, I yeah. saw this on your website last night and I was like, yeah. she's written it for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd say anyone really over 35, kind of 37, you know, 38, 39, you're kind of moving into the territory. Oh, where mate, mate, I'm 44. I'm like okay. plumbing the you're middle there. of it all. So I'm, I'm so excited when I saw that was coming out. But yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. But, yeah, that could be next yeah. year. But yeah. my main book is Period Repair Manual. And it's for any age from teenager all the way through till, yeah, period stop. And my social media, so I'm very easy to find. My blog is larabryden.com. There's quite a few blog posts for free that available to that cover a lot of what we've talked about today. Um, my All my social media is at larabryden. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And you also do practice over in New Zealand at the moment? Yeah, I have rooms in Christchurch. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I like. I prefer seeing patients face to face. I just I find it's just more. I don't. Know, it's better <laughs> for me. It's more meaningful. It's yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, again, thank you so so very much for for sharing all your wisdom with us today. And um, look, I think not only the women out there who you know are listening to this, but also who've got issues with their periods themselves, but also mums who are raising teenage daughters. This. Yeah this chat today has been so valuable for them too. So from all of them and from myself, thank you very, very much for sharing your time with us today. Thanks, Jules. Thanks for such a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to Straight Talking Natural Health. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, head over to my website at julesgalloway.com. There's a free quiz on there to see if you're at risk of burnout. 
I also have an amazing ebook called Heal Your Adrenals, which is a must for any woman with adrenal dysfunction, aka adrenal fatigue. When I'm not podcasting, I'm seeing clients all over the world via Zoom. I love working with fatigue, thyroid issues, autoimmunity, pyrrole disorder, mold illness, and complex cases, to name just a few. So why not book in and let's work together? All of this and more is available right now over at JulesGalloway.com. That's all from me for the time being. I look forward to diving in with you again in the next episode. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.